You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, as you look around yourself this morning, you'll, you'll notice that illness and Labor Day have conspired against us on this Sunday morning. So let me encourage you to be in prayer and in contact with those that are not here this morning, singing with us, enjoying God's word together, that they would be encouraged. And we look forward to an opportunity for us to be back in full force with our voices together. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's word to our sermon text for this morning, which is found in the book of Amos chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. Amos chapter 6, verses 9 through 14. Most of you know that we are working our way through the book of Amos in a series called Gripped by God. And we just have about three chapters left. It'll take us through, through October or so as we come to this text this morning. I also hope that you have been praying, as we discussed uh, last Sunday, that you have been praying for the many different things going on in our world, serious, heavy things. There are times, it seems, in, uh, in our lives and in our world when the, the power of sin, the presence of sin, the, the seriousness of wickedness is more evident to us. And this has been one of, those, one of those heavy months as we have seen so much of this in our world. And you know, when this happens, it gives us opportunity to reflect upon our own great need for God's grace as we see what seems to be wickedness winning the day and um, finding their way, we are given opportunity to think again about how we need God's help, we need God's grace, and we need humility. Maybe you have been thinking about that over the last few weeks and even noticing the examples of wickedness in our world. I wonder if you were to try to put a face on wickedness right now, what face would you put on it? I think for most people, we would see the events that we recently saw in Afghanistan, whether it's the Taliban or ISIS or other groups like that. It's, it's very easy for us to put the, the term wickedness on those people, on those groups. And Yet, uh, it gives us opportunity to think about their need for grace. I watch the news and I see these events unfold and I, I sit and just think about them for a while. And, and, you know, I ask myself, how can these people, how can these wicked people, how can they come to know God? How possibly could they come to know God? And as I continue to think about this in light of Scripture, in light of my knowledge of my own heart, I come to one conclusion, and that is that they cannot. They cannot come to know God. But just as pride might rise in our hearts with thoughts like that, that because we know God and, and, and they cannot know God, we need the humility of the Word of God to remind us why. Why can they not simply come to know God? Well, it's the same reason that you and I could not simply just come to know God. It's because of both of us and our great need for humility. But not just any kind of humility. It's not just the, the everyday, ordinary kind of humility, the kind of humility that makes someone do something nice for someone else or let someone cut in line at the grocery store or Whatever it may be, it's a special kind of humility. 
It's a kind of humility that can only be worked in us by the God of humility. It's the kind of humility that can only be worked in us by the God of the gospel who comes to us and humbles us and gives us the gifts that we need so that we may come to him. And so this morning, as we consider this text, we think together about our need, your need and my need for gospel humility, even in these moments, our desperate need for God to work in us and to continue working in us as we give him thanks that that we have come to faith in Christ. We have come into his covenant family because of what he has done for us, how he has overpowered the pride of our fallen hearts and he has brought us into his grace and he continues to work in us. And that is, that's our prayer for the world. As a church, our prayer is that that work of God would spread around the world and that many people would come to know God the way that we have. Not simply, but truly, because he's worked, he's worked in us and we pray that he would do his, his gracious work in them as well. I want you to hear first uh, an important quote from a pastor named Andrew Murray who wrote a book called Humility. It's a great book that you might get a hold of and read. It's not very long, but would do our hearts well. Listen to what Andrew Murray says here about humility. He says, here is the path to the higher life. Down, lower down. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, So the moment God finds men abased and empty, his glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. Well, this morning, we are going to consider this reality in the lives of God's people, Israel in particular, in the book of Amos, which is also the reality of our lives today by considering three truths. These are three truths about gospel humility, our need for it, and how God works it in us, why it is so important, and why we should, as a church, as believers, we should continue our pursuit of the gospel and his grace and our need for humility today. Here's the first truth. I hope that you're writing these down so you can consider them later in the week, particularly in community group life this week. First, the first truth that we find this morning from this text in Amos is that when people leave God, pride rises. When people leave God, pride rises. You know, you don't have to live very long with an honest view of yourself, with a careful view of Scripture and others, to know the simple truth that all people are prone to leave God. That was our our initial problem, wasn't it? That's what it means to be born in sin in the world, to be born separated from God, which the Bible so clearly teaches to us. It's the very beginning condition that we're in is apart from God. Not simply prone to leave him, but having, having left him in our hearts, wanting nothing to do with him until he does his work in us. But even after he's done his work in us, if you take an honest assessment of your life, if you you could look into my heart as I am able to do only to some degree with God's help, 
if we would look carefully at God's word and what it tells us about ourselves, we would still find that humbling truth, wouldn't we? That every one of us, even in Christ, we are still prone to leave God. I remind you of these words, which we even considered just a a few weeks ago from Robert Robinson, the hymn writer of Come Thou Fount. Listen to what he says in this hymn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. What a picture of the true reality of our own hearts and the humility that that truth brings. That when we come to see ourselves rightly, we come to see our ongoing need for God, that we we never outgrow the gospel, we never outgrow our need for grace, and we never outgrow our very real propensity to leave our God. And when we do, we see that our pride rises. This truth really shows the deceit and the kind of unpredictability of sin, the way that sin can so easily kind of lure us or or lull us to sleep. Because if you even think about those words from Robert Robinson and you you remember some of that hymn that he wrote, Come Thou Fount, you find that, that it almost doesn't make sense. How possibly... Could it be that, that for those of us who have, have come to know the God who is a fountain of grace and satisfaction and gladness because of all that he's done for us and all that he is for us, that still we, like Robert Robinson, would be prone to wander? It doesn't make sense, but it is true. And therefore, as a church, as believers who care very much about the word of God, very much about the gospel, very much about our souls, we want to keep this truth in front of us. It's the truth of humility. It's the truth that doesn't doesn't give in to overconfidence about our own place with God. And it is the place that we really come to some self-awareness about who we really are and how desperately we need him. Day by day, moment by moment. We have this morning in this text in Amos a clear example because the people of God in Amos had in many ways left their God. Even in the most recent chapter that we've been through, this one, chapter six, you see at the very beginning this kind of description that Amos is giving under the inspiration of God of what their lives had become like He said in the very beginning of the chapter, woe to those who are carefree in Zion. Those who are not in tune with the reality of their own lives, of their own need. And the fact that they had even left their God in search of all of these other things that they could gain by their own strength. Woe to those who live, who lie on ivory beds and eat lambs from the flock who have, who have settled into this life that, that is no longer really, really considering their own need for him. It's a good example to us. And it is an example of the work of pride. I know in my heart, and I think you know in your heart, that it's pride. It's pride that rises 
when we leave God. It's pride that rises and, and leads us to leave God. And when we have left, it's pride that keeps us going. It even changes the very kind of daily habits of our lives, the way that we see our lives on a daily basis. Sometimes without even noticing, we fall into these ways of living, these ways of thinking that are kind of godless. And it's all because of the blinding power and work of pride. James writes about this in James chapter 4 in the New Testament. Listen to verses 13 through 16. This very telling diagnosis and very helpful prescription for this problem. Listen to what he says. Come now, you who say, you'll hear this, this daily kind of life that has become controlled by pride, by a failure to stay with God and keep eyes on him, Because we come to say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, And here's the voice of humility. Here's the voice of God-centered living. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, your pride. All such boasting is evil. You see how that creeps right into our lives We're no longer are we living as people who are dependent upon the will of God or seeing ourselves that way, seeing ourselves under his perfect care, under his sovereign control and order. And instead we slip out from there, don't we? And it's so easy to refashion even the view of life that we have that that really life is all about what we can will. It's about what we will do. When just as James tells us, We don't even know if tomorrow we will live or do this or that. The reason that this is so important, the reason it was so important at this time among these people, why it's so important among our time and our people is because even for us in Christ, sin is alive. We talk about this in our church uh, quite a bit, just the reality of of what, what we might call remaining sin It means that there are parts of us that God in his perfect timing is continuing to work on in us. There's yet sin at work in our hearts. And this is our greatest problem. I have to admit to you that that on most days, I don't think of that as my greatest problem. I might think of my children as my greatest problem. I might think of my time or my own energy and health as my greatest problem. I might think of of the world around me or or the wicked people in the world as my greatest problem. But it's just, again, it's just, again, the reminder that sin is, is deceitful within me. And what is so bad about it is that sin hates God. It's, it's like it's alive. It's like it, it's its own person. 
with its own thoughts and its own scheming intentions living inside of me. And for some reason, I'm just so dull that I often don't see it. And when I don't see it, it does exactly what has happened here among these people at this time. It has fostered a repelling force against God, a repelling force that, 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 that leads me, lures me to leave God and push away. Not a lot unlike two opposing magnets. I remember being a kid in elementary and middle school in science class, and we had a chance to learn about those magnets and play with them. And it was just, I don't know what this says about me, probably nothing very smart. I was like fascinated with that. I was fascinated to put the two together and try to hold them next to each other uh, and push them together, and I, I just couldn't do it. I, you can feel it. You know, you can, you can feel the forces working against each other because they're in opposition to each other. They cannot. They cannot come together. They're constantly pushing well, this is the work of pride. That's the, that's the picture of what's going on in our hearts. That's why our, our lives with God seem to be so much like an accordion, going back and forth, sometimes drawing near, sometimes pulling away. We give clear warning about this in these verses. Just look at verses 9 and 10 in Amos chapter 6. After all of this warning about there being... Um, carefree in Zion and, and living by their own strength and the cautions of what was going to happen as consequences for that kind of living. Listen to what he says next in verse 9. It's an ominous kind of warning, but it paints the picture of what the human heart becomes like when leaving God. It will be if 10 men are left in one house, they will die. That's a gruesome thought. It's a comprehensive thought. It's an exhaustive thought of judgment. And then it goes on. Then, here's the picture. One's uncle or his undertaker will lift him up to carry out his bones from the house. Now, that's a serious thing that's happened. That's serious judgment. It, it, it almost sounds like, like a cremation. That's a serious death. It's not a body. It's bones and he will say to the one who is in the innermost part of the house, is anyone else with you? And that one will say, no one. Then he will answer, keep quiet, for the name of the Lord is not to be mentioned. Now, these verses are difficult to know exactly what they mean, but as we look at the context and we look carefully at them, I think we can come to, to two possibilities, both of which, both of which seems to fit and can be a big help to us. Here's first. In this little picture that's played out as an example of what it will be like, it's possible either that these people have come to a place because of their pride where they believe it's simply useless to call on God. They've wandered so far from him that it, it feels as though it's useless to call upon him. Again, I really see the footsteps and the fingerprints of pride all over that kind of thinking. Have you ever thought something like that before? Have you ever been in a situation of, I mean, it could be like really serious grief over a loss or it could be grief over your own 
sin struggle or some trouble that you've gotten yourself into, or could just be circumstances that keep working against you and you can't seem to get ahead, and suddenly you start to think, it doesn't even make any difference if I call on God because I'm, I'm so far away from him. This, this whole situation is so bad. I'm in such bad shape. There's just no hope anymore. Well, you can hear it there, can't you? There's a kind of pride. It's that sense that, that even this situation, God can't control. Even the place that I've placed myself, God cannot find me. Well, that's a lot of pride to think that you could hide somewhere from him or that the world could bury you so far under its troubles and tribulations that he couldn't find you or he couldn't reach you. It could be that kind of feeling. Or it could be, it could be a refusal to call upon the name of God. It could be a, a settled determination not to call upon the name of God. And just think about how insane that would be. Think about how great the pride must be that in the moment of, of extreme loss, 10 men in a house and all have died and someone's uncle or undertaker is carrying his bones up, that they even would find one person inside the inner room of the house and would say, shh, don't talk. We shouldn't mention the name of God because that's not what we're about. Again, you see pride. Pride is the outworking of sin's repelling action. Even here, in times of great need. Can you think of a situation where you would more need God than the one that's been described right before our eyes in verses 9 and 10? Or even great sorrow. But that's what sin and pride do. They're relentless. They resist to the very end. So I ask you the question again. How can anyone come to know God then? If the picture the Bible paints for us here and in so many other places is of a kind of settled pride and opposition to God, a kind of wickedness and, and sin that doesn't give up and is, stands firm to the end, repelling, 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 how in the world... Could anyone ever overcome that? And the answer is, they cannot. Because there's only way, one way for that to be overcome. It is only by the overpowering force of God's drawing by grace. It's a divine work that has to be done. It's a kind of overpowering love and compassion and grace that must come from God and work in us. This is the irresistible nature of God's grace in our lives. And aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful for that when you hear it put this way? When you really feel your need, when you really feel the hopelessness of the situation, I, I cannot, I cannot fix this. I cannot come to God. I'm too weak. I'm too buried. I can't do it. I'm thankful for God's grace then because his grace is the overpowering grace that can reach me, that can help me, that can pull me up and can draw me in. Just like those two magnets, just same way when I was in elementary school, middle school, working with those magnets, I would... I would flip them around or, or find the right ones that would attract to each other. 
and my, my feeble little hands couldn't even pull them apart. It's because of the overpowering force of grace. That's what the people of Amos need. They need God to work in them. So there's that first truth. It's good for us to cling to that because we want to know this. We want to remember this. This is the warning. Don't leave God. Because when you leave God, pride is rising. Pride and sin never give up. But number two, also notice this. When pride rises, sin rejoices. This is, again, the kind of picture that the Bible paints for us. So helpful when when sin, in many places, is personified. That means that sin is talked about like a person. So sin isn't just this thing. It's not simply a tool that, that people grab hold of. It's this living thing. And even then, it has its own ability to rejoice. Pride and sin are then self-motivating powers. They feed off of one another. That's how you can get into this cycle that keeps going, keeps going, and it feels like I can't get out of it. It's because they motivate one another. They feed off of each other. You know, one of the great... Oh, this is going to sound trivial. It is, it is trivial, but it's still true. One of, the, one of the losses of the last year and a half of the enjoyments of my life has been watching sports, football, basketball. But one of the losses that has really stood out to me is the loss of the crowd at the games. You've probably been to one of these games. Uh, OSU game is a great example, really any big arena with a really rabid crowd. And you see the way that the team, home team, and the crowd feed off of each other. That is a real thing. Home court advantage is a real thing. And it is amazing to watch. It does not matter how strong, how good the opposing team is if the crowd and the home team conspire together in motivation, they cannot be beat. Why? Because they feed off of each other. The energy continues to mount and mount and mount. The joy, the gladness in the arena between both working together continues to to soar until they are dominant. And that dynamic is one of the things exactly that makes our fight with sin so very difficult because both sin and pride motivate one another. They they feed off of each other. And it can feel as though it's an inescapable kind of cycle. And pretty soon we're caught up in it and we just can't even see it anymore. That's what sin wants to do. That's what pride wants to do. You've probably felt it in your heart. I I know that I have in mine. Sin, when it's at work, we leave in God and pride is rising. It leads us to rejoice. It leads us to rejoice in ourselves. That word rejoice is a simple one in the Bible. It means to be happy. It means to be excited. It means to be satisfied and fulfilled, to rejoice Listen to what it says in verse 13. You who rejoice in Lodabar, that's a place that they they are referring to as a place of conquering. 
and say, have we not by our own strength taken our name for ourselves? This is a theme that we've seen in Amos, which is the people of God no longer uh, ministering to those around them, but dominating them, trying to take advantage of them and to do it all by their own strength, pride rising such that when they accomplish their goals, they are rejoicing over their own strength. They're not rejoicing over God's strength. They're rejoicing over their own strength. And this is what pride does. It rejoices, but it rejoices in the wrong kingdom, doesn't it? It doesn't rejoice in God's kingdom. It rejoices in our little kingdom, our little kingdom of self. It seeks happiness there. Now, again, that doesn't make any sense. This is the insanity of sin and pride. It's somewhat uh, baked into this text in verse 13 because the words that Amos is using, they seem to be kind of a play on words to, to bring out some kind of, some kind of clear uh, indictment upon the silliness of this kind of living where you say by our own strength, we have done this great thing. Lodabar is a word, perhaps a play on words that means not a thing. And carname simply means pair of horns. Not a thing, pair of horns. This is what by your strength you have accomplished. You accomplished not a thing and two horns. That's the picture. But you see the insanity of it. You see the, the drunkenness of pride. Have we not by our own strength done this and done that? You who rejoice in Lodabar, it's like a wildfire. As the quest of sin for accomplishment and exaltation of ourselves and our own strength is met, as the oxygen is coming into that fire, that fire, the fire of pride rises, sin rejoices, and its gladness, its rejoicing in self just grows hotter and bigger and wider. Try telling someone who is pursuing satisfaction and purpose and happiness in life in themselves that without Christ they are unhappy. Try. It cannot be done. That's one of the funny things that we've done. That's one of the funny things that I've done is to go around to people who are pursuing their own satisfaction in themselves apart from Christ in their unbelief and try to persuade them that they're not happy. The reality is that they are quite happy. Some of the happiest people I know are unbelievers. Why? It's because hearts rejoice when they get what they want. Try to persuade them. They won't believe you. If you say, oh, you're not happy. Jesus can make you happy. They will not believe you. They're quite happy just as they are. And as they pursue, as you and I pursue leaving God, going our own way, what will happen? We can get happier and happier. Settled in happiness. 
Now, of course, there is the reality from God's view, the, the heavenly picture that is shining down, that this is absolutely disconnected from the truth. It, it doesn't make any sense. You see that also in verses 11 and 12. For behold, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces and the small house to rubble. They don't see this coming. But also, notice what he says next, something very interesting. Verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Or does one plow them, rocks, with oxen? Of course not. Of course you don't plow rocks. You plow a field. It would be insanity to take your horse and plow the rocks as though that were your field and you were going to harvest it. And yet that's the way they're living. Out of step with God's reality. You have turned justice into poison. It's it's the exact opposite. Justice is medicine. And the fruit of righteousness into wormwood, uh, something bitter rather than something sweet. You rejoice. You rejoice in your own strength. I feel that. I feel that in my heart, the conviction of that. You rejoice in your own strength, don't you, Rush? You do. Doesn't make any sense. Now, again, there's that reality that's not real. That's not real from God's view. That's not real happiness. It's a, it, it's a figment. It, it, it's, a, it's a trick. It's an illusion. You remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the movie, or the book, when the white witch rides in through Narnia in the snow on her um, horse-drawn carriage or sleigh, and Edmund meets her there, and she's, she's wooing him, in, in, into to do her, her bidding. And she takes out of her robe this little vial of some kind of magic liquid and she drips it on the ground and all of a sudden it becomes Turkish delight. She drips it again and it becomes this wonderful, foaming, warm, comforting kind of drink and he drinks it down. But as soon as the moment is over and that's not needed anymore, it gets cast aside by her little minion and it just turns into snow. That's what trusting in self, that's what pride does, right? It blinds us to think that that's real when it is not. How do we get out of that? How are we going to avoid that? Well, change, all the time this kind of change it requires what I would call an alien work. Have you ever heard of that before? Alien righteousness, an alien work. It means that it's, it's a work that has to come from another world. It's not a work that can come in us. We can't just, just gear up our will and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and all of a sudden we're going to overcome our pride. We need the alien work of God to invade our hearts and lives. We need him to come into the situation and praise God. He is gracious to do that. Though sometimes, sometimes that hurts. You see the gracious work that he's doing here. Look at it in verse 11. This covenant people, the Lord is going to command that the great house be smashed to pieces. 
and the small house to rubble? That's how it comes. That's sometimes how humility comes. And it comes as a work of God's grace. Listen again to this wonderful pastor, Andrew Murray, on humility. Listen to what he says next. You'll see the words on the screen. The highest glory of the creature is in being only a vessel to receive and enjoy and show forth the glory of God. It can do this only as it's willing to be nothing in itself. That's humility. That God may be all. Water always fills the lowest places. The lower, the emptier a man lies before God, the speedier and the fuller will be the inflow of the divine glory. What a wonderful, helpful picture that is. This is the way. This is the way to glory. This is the way to real gladness. It's the way to real satisfaction by being a vessel, not by being the potter. But sometimes it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to get there because sometimes it requires this hard work of God. It requires his discipline, which we've been reading about over and over again in the book of Amos and hopefully feeling our own need for God to be gracious to us in these ways and work in us even though, it's, even though it can be difficult. Here's the last truth. This is the truth of grace, but this is the truth of pain. When pride rises and sin rejoices, God humbles his people. God won't stand to have his people like this. He won't allow them to be like this forever. He's at work in them, and he will humble them. We know from the Bible this clear truth that God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud. Not merely, not merely as a, as a principle, a matter of principle, that anytime he sees pride, he humbles it, because he doesn't always do that. But rather, in many cases, he does it as an act of grace. That's an act of grace. It's the same kind of grace that's at work in, in many of the examples of, of godly parents disciplining their children. That by grace, they bring that discipline. They bring that instruction. They bring that bit of pain. And it is working this good work of grace. Now, I said a second ago, in many cases, it is out of grace. And that's because in other cases, God will oppose the proud in an act of judgment. And that act of judgment will not end. His opposing of the proud is not always of grace. But for those who know him, for those who know him, it is. And it's something that we want to welcome it's something that we want to receive, something that we want to embrace, because in his covenant love, he opposes pride, as we see here, as a work to draw us back. That's what I believe he's doing, at least in part, among Israel at this time. He's doing this work to bring them back. He promises through Amos 
to break their pride, to break their spirit. Listen to this in verse 14. This is our last verse this morning. For behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, house of Israel, declares the Lord God of armies, and they will torment you. They will torment you from the entrance of Amath to the brook of Arabah. Those are the two boundaries, the northernmost boundary and the southernmost boundary. It's a picture of his relentless work to humble them. His very serious determination to break their spirit. That's a powerful word. You, you heard it. Torment. Wow. Torment. We pray that whatever God does in our lives, he would do it by grace and that he would call us back to himself. We even pray that he would do this in the lives of people that we love. I have prayed for this before. I've prayed for people that I've loved who were bound up and they just, they just were not turning. They just would not humble themselves before God and come to him. Knowing the serious consequences, I have prayed that before. Quietly, softly. God, I pray you would torment my friend torment him until he comes to you. I want your discipline. I want your work to be a work of grace. And I pray that you would quickly, quickly bring him to yourself. That's our prayer. Our prayer is that God would do that by grace. And the reason that we pray so fervently that God would do that by grace is because we know this. Everyone is going to be humbled. Everyone in the world is going to be humbled. It's not a question of if. It's a question of when and how, because all will eventually come to the place of humility. God is on a quest to humble the world. So what he says in Romans 14 and other places, even in the Old Testament. We will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Every knee will bow. Either in the fate of final judgment or in the joy of future unending grace. And that's our prayer. That's our prayer that God would continue doing this incredible work and that he would use us. But we ought to heed the warning. Hear it. If you hear what I'm saying this morning, consider this. Are you in Christ? Come now. Come to him now. Ask him to give you everything that you need so that you can come to him. With any gift that he's given to you, humble your heart and come to him so that you can be those who enjoy future grace. We pray this way about humility for ourselves, and we see humility this way because we know this truth, that humility, as we have seen from the very first moment this morning, the work of humility in our hearts, it is all of grace. That's what we need. We need God to be gracious And he is gracious. We need to be merciful. Man, he is merciful. He is compassionate toward us and at work in us. He gives us grace. He gives us grace for for past sin, 
even sin that's taken root and, and is persisting with pride. He gives us grace in Christ for these present struggles, sin and suffering to work in us humility. Now he's always working. And he gives us grace for this future gladness. Can you see that? I hope that you have a vision for the future gladness and the future grace of God because that's what this life is all about. It's about his unending promises to those he loves and those who know him. Therefore, we want to make our lives about grace. So as we come to a close this morning, I can give you just a few points of application that we would take this text and we would use it in these ways. Here they are. They will sound very familiar to you. And because they sound familiar, we need to take them all the more seriously. Really with discipline and consistency first, pray. Let's do that as a church. Let's pray for grace. Grace is a gift. Let's ask God to keep giving us this good gift. Keep giving us grace. Give those around me grace. Please, God. Number two, we would serve our souls well to intentionally read about grace. Read about grace in the Bible. Do you need more grace in your life? I do. Let's read about it. The only way you can get it is by beholding it. Behold it in the Bible. Seek it out in the Bible. Look for God being gracious. There are also other books that, that very clearly teach the teachings of the Bible. Putting Amazing Back Into Grace is one that comes to the top of my mind by Michael Horton. You can find that on Amazon. and Read that book. There's so many. Humility by Andrew Murray. So many books that will help us understand and embrace God's grace. Number three, this one is not as obvious because it's not as easy something we go and do, but it's something that we want to be. Be glad for grace. Are you glad for grace every day, regularly? Let's cultivate this gladness as you behold it in the Bible, as you read it in other books, as you pray for it, as you, we talk together in community group life, as we hear it in his word, be glad for grace. And then finally, just as we know is what God has called us to, let's bestow grace. Let's bestow this redemptive grace on others by making the gospel paramount by engaging people, by entering their world and understanding their need and make it our quest not to make points, not to win those debates, but to bring grace. Grace that is going to show off the glory of the God of grace. That's our calling this morning for all of us to take this seriously as people who have received grace. I'm going to pray for us and and ask you to stand once again, and then we're going to sing. Go ahead and stand now. And before I pray, just one last gem. One last gem from Andrew Murray. Listen to this. In case you are one of those people like me whose heart tends to say no to the good things God gives us, even maybe humility to say, oh, humility won't help me reach my goals in life. I need to be excelling. I need to be running ahead. I need to be at the top. Humility doesn't sound very helpful to me. Well, listen to Pastor Murray. He says this. Men sometimes speak as if humility and meekness 
would rob us of what is noble and bold and manlike. Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, that this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed, that this is godlike to humble oneself to become the servant of all. Father in heaven, we, oh, we feel our need of your grace right now. We feel the need of your power in our lives. And so we want this. We want what you've shown us in your word today. We want humility that we would not boast in our own strength, that we would not shy away from being people who associate ourselves with your great name, that we would not be prone to wander, but prone to draw near to you. We need humility. Please help us today. We pray that you would work it in us to your glory. Make us people of grace. Make us know what grace is, to love what grace is, to be glad about your grace. We pray that you would help us to humble ourselves, to become even more your servants, servants of all, servants who have been enlisted to make the gospel great. We pray this in Jesus' name today. Amen. Amen.